What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Darius Dale is the founder and CEO of 42 Macro, the leading macro risk management advisor. In this conversation, we talk about what's going on in the macro economy, what's happening in the financial markets, how Darius is looking at various metrics, and also what you at home should be thinking about as you invest your capital. I really enjoyed this conversation with Darius, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by Exodus, the world's leading desktop, mobile, and hardware crypto wallet. They offer beautiful, user-friendly blockchain products that sync across all of your devices, making it easier to send, receive, and exchange over 150 or more crypto assets in one place. And with world-class customer service available to you 24-7, Exodus always has your back. But the fun doesn't stop with staking and trading. They recently launched a new NFT marketplace where you can buy and sell your favorite NFTs on the Solana network. By partnering with the popular NFT platform Magic Eden, they're offering the full Monty on verified collections, with more added every single day. Ready to check it out for yourself? Run, don't walk, over to exodus.com pomp for your free download today. Again, if you want the world's leading desktop, mobile, and hardware crypto wallet, go to exodus.com pomp today. Today's episode is sponsored by Abra. They're based in California, and they're backed by top VC firms. Abra is an all-in-one, simple, secure app that allows you to trade over 110 cryptocurrencies, get 0% interest loans using your crypto as collateral, and earn interest with up to 13% APY on stablecoins and 7.15% APY on Bitcoin. You can join nearly 2 million users by downloading Abra from the Google Play or Apple App Store. If you download the app today, you will get $15 in free crypto once you fund your account. You came, you invested, now conquer. Abra, conquer crypto. Go check it out today. This episode is brought to you by DeFi Technologies. DeFi Technologies represents what's next in the digital economy. They're providing simplified, trusted access to crypto, decentralized finance, and Web3 investment opportunities. Institutions and investors can gain diversified, secure, compliant, and easily tradable access to a diversified set of industry-leading equity products and protocols through a single stock purchase on a regulated exchange. DeFi Technologies is currently listed on the U.S. exchange at DEFTF stock ticker and the Canadian NEO exchange at DEFI. For more information or to subscribe to receive company updates and financial information, visit their website at DeFi.tech. I'm really excited about what these guys are doing. I've become an advisor to the business, and I highly suggest you go check them out. Go to their website at defi.tech today. All right, let's get in this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, we got a lot of stuff we got to talk about. A lot of stuff going on. Let's start with uh, uh, maybe Bill Ackman recently is supposedly lost $430 million on Netflix. I would love to be in a position to lose $431 million. And by the way, his fund's only down 2% for the year, so like he's chilling. He's Uh, he's chilling hard. Uh, Netflix, Facebook, all this stuff is down pretty significantly. Uh, Robin Hood, I mean, just like they're all down. Is the bleeding over or is this just the start of something that could get way, way worse? Yeah, no, I still think it's the start of something that's going to get worse, uh, way, way worse. You know, for Netflix in particular, probably not. I mean, that thing was down 30, 40%. Um, but, but the point is like, you know, when you're in these sort of 
financial market bubbles, I think we can all agree that, you know, the past couple of years was a bubble pull up a chart of pretty much anything uh, on a log, certainly on a, on a non-log scale. When you're in these bubbles in the equity market, you know, there's always kind of like one or two big companies that come out and, you know, report something, either earnings or guidance that's really negative and causes the stock to collapse. You know, and that's usually the beginning of the end of the bubble. I would argue Facebook last quarter was kind of like the the, the predecessor for for this move we're seeing in Netflix. But you go back to the, uh, you know, the housing bubble. Um, Bear Stearns kind of collapsing in 2007 was a was a big deal. Uh, you go back to the, t- the prior tech bubble, uh, you know, 2000, uh, Qualcomm kind of missed and, and guided down. And that was kind of the end of the tech bubble. And so there's always these sort of like seminal moments when you look back in time and say, hey, look, that's kind of when like the whole valuation narrative change and the kind of range of probable outcomes that investors would assign to value these companies, you know, really started to shift downward. And I think that's exactly what Netflix has kind of given us the look on. When you start to see this, uh, how do you know when the market's bottomed? Like, should people look for certain uh, signs to say, like, okay, now's the time to deploy capital, which I think is what Ackman was trying to do. Mm-hmm. Netflix had already fallen. Then he went in to buy some, and he said, you know, we're so glad that the market provided this opportunity for mm-hmm. us. And then it fell another 35%. So I don't think he thought uh, he was buying something that was falling. I think he thought he was buying something that was heavily discounted, uh, and it was basically bottoming, and then he would benefit on the recovery. So what are the signs that you look for for the stock market to quote unquote have bottom? Yeah. So it's obviously it's impossible to, to not impossible without luck, but it's it's very difficult to, to ascertain tops or bottoms in real time. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you have to rely on a, a, like different sets of indicators to give you a good sense. So, you know, for something like on a fundamental side of things, when you're looking for a bottom, what you want to find is, is sort of one B within, you know, one or two quarters of a, of a real second derivative inflection and in growth. Uh, and generally speaking, you want to be in that part of the process where the third derivative is already improving. It's already positive. So, you know, that kind of is like the the first sign that you're getting close to the bottom from a fundamental standpoint. From a policy standpoint, you obviously want to be very close to a dovish pivot out of the Fed or out of the major central bank of the, you know, kind of economy that you're you're investing in, China, PBOC, you know, ECB. Uh, and so, like, we're obviously not anywhere close to that. We're nowhere close to a growth bottom. And then typically when you're having an event in asset markets, and this could be for single stocks, could be for credit, could be for the broader index, you know, typically what happens if you're you're already having a problem, investors tend to o- overpay for volatility, near-term, short-data protection. And what typically marks the bottom is sort of, you know, rolling past the, the exp- expiration of those options. They evaporate. They don't, you know, they don't exist anymore. Investors monetize those options. And then the dealers who sort of have to short futures, short things to kind of uh, hedge that that risk to the downside, they start to unwind those trades. And mm-hmm. that tends to create that forceful bottom. So neither of those three things, which I would be looking for to ascertain a bottom in something like Netflix or the broader stock market have occurred yet. So when we start to think about uh, the reason why some of this has happened, uh, stocks got super overheated. There's all this undisciplined monetary fiscal policy. We talked about that uh, quite uh, quite a bit. Um, there's a very interesting comment uh, that I saw. Uh, I think it's the Alliance Economic Advisor, uh, Mohammed El Alianza, yeah, Mohammed El Yep. yep. And uh, what he described was this idea that the Federal Reserve may actually move their inflation target from two percent to three percent. So I went down this deep you know, a uh, rabbit hole did this whole uh, look at, that's a 50% increase. That don't, didn't take me that much of a deep dive <laughs> to figure deal. out, uh-huh. right? But what is an inflation target? How does it work, right? I wrote all this stuff. And the deeper I got it, I was like, this may be one of the biggest stories in finance right now that doesn't seem to be getting a lot of attention, but Enormous. like 
Do you think that they would raise the inflation target from two to three percent? Like, what would the ramifications of that be? So uh, let's let's talk about what. The, let's go backwards because the ramifications are more interesting than whether or not if I think they'll do it or not. I don't think they'll do it. That's a kind of quick takeaway. Uh, the ramifications are very very positive because it means the Fed has more leeway from an inflation standpoint in terms of their reaction function. Okay. So if you have a higher inflation target, all things being equal, you don't need to tighten as much to get inflation back towards neutral Got or it. back towards the the target. You know, right now, core PC, which is their preferred metric, is running a, at a preposterously low 5.4%. <laughs> doesn't even sound right when you say it out loud, but let's just say it's 5.4%. That's still, you know, 240 base, or sorry, 340 basis points above uh, where, where they're, you know, so where the midpoint of their target range is. So that's a big deal. Um, but if it was only 240 basis points, they would have to do less tightening, less quantitative yep. tightening, all that stuff. And so whether or not they'll do it, the reason I don't think they'll do it is because, you know, when you look at most polls, you know, whether it be consumer confidence readings, you know, Gallup polls or any sort of like politically oriented poll, inflation really for the past few months has really been the dominant sort of number one fear factor in America. It's been the number one reason why people are pissed off. And so for me, I think the Federal Reserve just kind of give it reading the tea leaves between the Biden administration, Jay Powell, Janet Yellen, and all the kind of commentary we're hearing back and forth. It strikes me that they realize that in, if inflation got worse and if they were deemed to be perceived to be perceived to be doing uh, less than they already are to combat inflation, that would actually exacerbate the problem, make it worse for Democrats to have a, a successful outcome in November, although they're probably not going to have a successful outcome in November. It's the last time we'll see a dual Democrat majority for quite quite some time. Yeah. Uh, when you start to then think about uh, they're not going to do it, why do you think they're not going to do it? Well, this is everything I said. I, if the, if you the, think that the, they, key, the key to winning in November for the midterm elections is to get inflation, inflation genie back in the bottle. And the reason I say that is because the Republican sort of campaign narrative and you know, particularly the early parts of this this campaign process, which they get earlier and earlier, obviously, is the Democrats gave you inflation. We're mm -hmm. here to fix it. Mm -hmm. And so the That's Democrats- pretty powerful story. It's very story. powerful. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's worked every time. There's not yeah. been a time in U.S. history, going back to the Civil War, and I'm sure probably before that, where that narrative, where that message, it resonates with the people, with the common yeah. people. And so uh, the Democrats, if they allow the Fed to sort of- ease up on combating inflation or if they allow inflation just to get worse from either the Fed or from other uh, existential circumstance, they're going to get not only just like lose, they're going to get absolutely buried and could potentially get like sustainably buried for I'm talking like multiple election cycles. But if they move it to 3%, then they have less to get back to their quote unquote target. And then can't they claim like a false victory? They can claim a false victory, but people aren't stupid. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> they told us it was transitory for a long time and people believed them. That's why people were pissed off. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Totally. I love I love everyone, but uh the yeah. the uh the education level of the nuances of economics yeah. is not quite as high as I think it should be. No, and not at all. if something tells me that if they raise the target to three percent, they would gaslight all of us back. Oh, so of course it's three percent. Yeah, yeah, we got to the three, like look how close we are. Totally. And then this is the problem, right? Like it's it's like Human beings feel the like the change in inflation. Like we, you know, like we all like what matters is the rate of inflation, not yes. like the level, you know, the price of, of goods, because obviously things are always changing in the economy. And so getting it back to three would be a victory relative to where we are now, right? Like we're five point four percent, you know, for core PCE, we're eight and a half percent for headline CPI. That is a directional victory, but it's certainly not a victory that one that you could sell to the general public. Because even though the general public might not understand the revision to the Fed's inflation target, the general public will understand that, hey, we're probably, the, the rate of change, the inflation level that we're experiencing today 
is higher than it was when XYZ was president or Congress, you know, was run by this other party. So that's the key takeaway. It's that like they're politically damned if they do, damned if they don't. And I think the longer for the longer term sustainability of the Democratic Party, getting inflation under control has to be the number one objective. Yeah. Uh, we've got this chart here uh, oh, that, that you provided uh, yeah. saying headline CPI likely needs to average a lot more than just under 3% to catalyze the permanent death of the 60-40 portfolio and or risk parity. What does that mean That's in plain English? <laughs> and uh, w- what is it showing us? Yeah, so the that chart, uh, it goes with the other chart, which I'll explain in, the se- in a second. The re- so right now, stocks and bonds are going up and going down together. That's the they have positive correlation. And empirically speaking, I'm not really sure why. I'm, I'm sure there's some theories out there academically. But at least empirically speaking, when inflation is over 5% headline, you typically see a positive correlation between stocks and bonds. And so right now, obviously, we're, we're, we're you know 350 basis points above that. And so we've seen this positive correlation between stocks and bonds really start to, st- you know, it kind of started last summer, but it's really intensified year to date. Um, you know, the reason I sort of sent you that chart was as a function of the previous chart, which is uh, the Japanese yen uh, devaluation narrative. And and so let me give you a little, let me give the listeners a little background on that, because that to me is one of the kind of underappreciated things that are happening in global macro right now. Uh, so the BOJ, uh, because Japan has struggled to generate inflation, had been in, you know, some version of hybrid deflation for a couple, you know, almost two to three decades now, they want to inflate monetary, they want to continue sort of stimulating monetary policy. They want to continue inflating, and so they have this the policy where they try to cap bond yields in Japan. It's called euro curve control. They are buying unlimited amounts of BOJs to to effectively keep the the cap on the yields, and it's causing the yen to basically get eviscerated. It's it's you know it's going down as fast as it's gone down in, in, in quite some time in, in many years, and so that that chart really says, okay, hey, look. One of the reasons the yen is going down is because the U.S. rates are get, you continue to go higher and higher, and Japanese investors want to go, you know, f- pick up the higher yield uh, differential. And so, you know, the the issue is was the the issue in the Treasury market was that investors thought the BOJ would stop this yield curve control program and start fighting inflation like everybody else. We never thought that, but that was that was the consensus. And the BOJ sort of effectively came out and said, no, 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 no. We're going to continue expanding our balance sheet at an unlimited pace to maintain this sort of level of easing in our economy. And so at the margin, that is positive for Treasury bond prices. That's negative for yields, which is negative for um, uh, which is positive for, for, for the yen at the margin. Now, it doesn't mean Treasury bonds are done going down. It just means that you're removing this kind of bear case, this part of the bear case out of the Jenga board, if you will. And so going back to the correlation chart, if Treasury bonds have or no longer have that sort of bear case in the Jenga board, you could sort of take that out of that bear case out of the stock market as well because they're positively correlated right now. Sorry, that was a really long winded no, explanation. But but, but it, it's <laughs> fascinating to kind of think through this because this is the complexity of the entire system right at play here. And each mm-hmm. person uh, or organization that has some levers that they can pull, totally, they're all pulling them. But I may be pulling levers that I don't know that you know that I'm pulling, right? Yeah. And, and so it's all happening at the same time. And so when you start to think about this, where's the safe haven? Like if you kind of look at the whole board, you say, all right, I'm playing, I'm playing the game. I just want to be in capital protection mode. Is it cash or is it something else? Yeah. So, I mean, it, I've been saying cash is king. It, it continues to be king. Uh, U.S. dollar, I know it's, a, it's probably unpopular in this room, but like U.S. dollar in these types of circumstances, particularly in a circumstance where the Fed looks 
like it has more runway just as a function of the trailing strength in the U.S. economy. It looks like it has more runway, not more runway to not only be more hawkish sooner, but also to stay hawkish for longer than other central banks, particularly relative to Europe. And so if you're looking for an asset that can appreciate in value, you know, the U.S. dollar relative to the euro, U.S. dollar relative to Swiss franc, um, U.S. dollar relative to the, you know, most currencies is going to do well. Um, you know, for whatever reason, gold is, is really hung in there for the most part, even though real interest rates have backed up uh, quite considerably. Um, and so, you know, that, you know, we all we talked about a few weeks ago or maybe a month ago, you know, kind of about the, the incremental attractiveness of gold and this kind of new, I would, I don't know if it's regulatory or geopolitical regime where, you know, they can just confiscate your, your, your central bank reserve or your FX reserves. And so I think about the gold, I think about dollar more, dollar more so than gold. And then again, just just don't be a hero. Just take down your risk. You don't need you can buy you can be long the same amount of stuff, by the way. Or sorry, sorry, the same composition of assets. I would not recommend being long the same composition of assets. But even if you just wanted to have a high beta portfolio of, of cryptocurrencies, you just need to have a lot less of that on. You know, sell half of it and, and raise cash, right? Mm-hmm. If you want to maintain that exposure. But I would not necessarily argue that that's a good idea either. So here's two wild stats for you. Gold is up 10% over the last year. The S&P 500 is only up eight. So gold's outperforming the S&P in the last uh, 12 months. Both are underperforming uh, inflation. Correct. (laughs) And over the last three years, both gold and the S&P 500 up exactly 53%. So dead even flat for the last three years, gold and S&P 500. Wow, that's crazy. Easy. I, that's a, what a stat. I didn't even know that. <laughs> Do this for a living. <laughs> that's, that's pretty crazy. That's right? crazy. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. to get to get flat. Yeah. For the last three years is uh, is pretty I mean, nuts. I mean, that tells you everything you need to know about why the S and P's up fifty three percent over the last three years. Yep. Everyone will tell you it's innovation and earnings growth and all the stuff that Wall Street is, is goes to business school to you know to train train you and tell you. But the reality is, if it was all that stuff, you'd see a spread between the performance of the stock market, you know, capital assets relative to a store value. And so clearly the stock market is really appreciated in the lockstep of the store value because investors are using it as a vehicle to speculate on balance sheet expansion out of the Federal Reserve. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty wild to kind of think through this. Uh, Joe, John, what questions uh, you guys got? How do you think people in the chat were asking about travel? Travel surging a lot and everything yeah. related with that. How does that play into all of this? Does this make it just worse in your opinion or does it not necessarily matter? Uh, uh, so uh, travel, let me take a step back and ask that from the market perspective. Like if you look at airlines, so <coughs> on a trending basis, airline stocks, hotel stocks, restaurant stocks, you know, those kinds of like that kind of that bucket, those things are, 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 have been trending lower and making lower highs for, for quite some time. Over the past sort of six weeks or so, they've been kind of making higher lows. So the chart looks like it has bottomed, at least temporarily. And so that at the margin is a signal that, you know, things aren't falling off a cliff yet from that perspective. There is still a reopening impulse left to to kind of walk to get us through. Now I happen to think in the month of, you know, April, we're, we're kind of towards the tail end of that reopening impulse. Maybe we get one more month of that in May uh, it, it, at the most into June. But the reality is we've already seen a lot of the reopening um, you know, if you look at the economic statistics and all the things that would be associated with that. So, you know, again, it's just it's just really just I would argue it's probably not even as positive as you, you might want it to be, because the reality is the more growth we get up front in this particular time period, the more tightening we're going to get. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's just the central bank is you know going to look around and see that financial conditions aren't tight enough. And they're going to start talking 70. I mean, Bullard said on Monday 
75, floated it, right? 75 yeah. yeah, floated. I mean, he's a floater, by the way. They always push him out of the door when they need to sort of yes. go incrementally hawkish or incrementally dovish. Yes. And so, you know, it's, he, the, if we keep seeing higher growth and higher inflation numbers, because, oh, by the way, you need growth to slow to slow inflation. That's usually how it works. Um, then you're going to see Bullard come out of the door and then you're going to see somebody fall out of the door after Bullard and eventually it'll be 75 basis point height, which, by the way, we haven't done since 1994. On the macro side of things, obviously, we're not the only country that is looming a recession, right? A bunch of other bond markets have mm-hmm. kind of inverse Japan, for example, and other countries as well. How does that all how does that all like play into effect? Like other if is everyone going in towards a recession, like similar to what the US is, or is it just different country by country? Yeah. So Japan is a little bit different in that in that it, it didn't have the sort of amplitude of the recovery that a lot of other economies had. So it's it's unlikely to sort of I mean, Japan is always kind of a foot in the grave in terms of recession, so let's be clear about that. But, like, you know, do, do I see the same level of recession risk in Japan? No, probably not. U.S. and Europe are probably front, are front and center in that regard. What? So let me ask this a different way. How do I make money in international markets right now with a recession in the U.S. looming? I mean, make money <laughs> in international markets? Yeah. It's probably not the best place to be putting your money. I mean, if you're, if you're, if you're going to remain involved in the equities asset class, then defensive – Defensive companies in U.S. markets are, are the best place to go. Utilities, consumer staples, healthcare. Um, I would even say all REITs because not all REITs are, are defensive. Um, but you know, there's places to park your money. And depending, again, again, I keep saying this. There's two ways to, for me to answer these questions. There's the are you a retail investor or someone you know just managing your own money or you know like you you have the ability to get out of the asset class and cash is always an option. If you're not a retail investor, you're an institutional investor, and you're not you know going to cash or raising. You know, cash in that regard, then you need to make relative performance bets. And the relative performance bet right now, relative to international equities, is very clearly U.S. defensives over everything else. Gotcha. Yeah. When you start thinking about stocks in particular, uh, Berkshire Hathaway, obviously we're seeing CalPERS is going to vote to to take out Warren Buffett. Uh, what's your thoughts on uh, on that specifically? And then, like, how do you think about a stock that is kind of the epitome of like value stocks in this environment? It, what, what has Warren Buffett done but generate a crap ton of returns for all of his investors over the last five decades? Right? You know, like, what is that? I don't know. It's a, it's a what have you done for me lately? League. This is that's this is that's. The, I mean, look, that's. I think that speaks more to the um, sort of like dichotomy. This this battle we continue to see that's emerged between baby boomers and millennials and Gen Z. Right, like there's probably some new quanti millennial running Calpers or Gen X person or you know that's backed by a bunch of quanti millennials, and they're looking at Grandpa, you know Grandpa Warren, and they're saying, "Hey, look, there's a better way to do this now." And I'm not saying that they're wrong or they're right. It's just that to me, it's more of a dickin of this generational struggle that we continue to see pop up in, in various corners of the markets and economy. Yeah, it's um, it's really interesting. Are, are there any other stocks that you're like these should do really well in this environment? Stocks, uh, no, like I mean, like any equities in particular that you're like, man, you know, this is uh, th- this is super interesting for ABC reason. Like, obviously, Tesla is doing fantastic oh, okay, right cool. now, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? So, so yeah, I don't cover uh, individual stocks, but I mean, you know, the problem with the problem with like, so this is what you want in this particular environment, which is very very difficult to do, right? You want companies that have a runway to growth that are not attached to to the economic cycle. I mean, if you could find those companies, you would be a billionaire, you know, hedge fund manager. So let me let me let me caveat that saying like that's what all the hedge fund managers are doing, and most of them do it poorly. So like you know, it's not it's not it's not even sorry, not most of them. At least half of them do it poorly by by statistical by statistical definition. Um, and so like it, yeah, it's it's hard. But I mean, like if you have a company that just has like a, a, a 
ton of runway either regulatory or there's some product innovation cycle like a biotech. They just discovered a cure for cancer. I don't care if we're in a recession or not. That stock price, that that stock's going up. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So like you want store idiosyncratic stores like that. The problem is, is that in this easy money era, we've been deluded into thinking that everything in the Kathy Wood ARC portfolio is, is one of those names and everything in the, you know, the XLK, the tech ETF is one of those names. And the reality is, no, it's been the damn central bank balance sheet. Yeah. You know. They 10X'd the balance sheet since 2008, 2009. Mm-hmm. Can it go 10X from here? No, it will go 10X from here. I mean, you think the Fed's balance 10, sheet years. will go 10X in the next 10 to 15 years? It might take another 10, 15 years, yeah. But it's, yeah, it's, why would it? This is not, until they fix whatever the hell is wrong with the system that causes them to keep doing it, and I'm not even sure that anyone really knows what's wrong. I think, I, I sorry, but I have a theory of what, what's wrong with the system. The, the problem with the system is that the buy side, the risk has been pushed to the buy side in terms of banks used to know their clients, know their customers, know their regions, know their geographies, and they would extend credit based on relationships and, and metrics and all this other stuff. And, you know, it was easy to sort of like understand the risk and, and even transfer the risk, syndicate the risk and all that stuff. Now, all the sort of risk taking and risk pricing and understanding fundamentals happens on the buy side in the shadows. It's literally called the shadow banking system for a reason. You know, private equity firms, hedge funds, you know, mutual funds are doing all the sort of capitalization in the economy. And so that's an inherently less stable system because I'm at hedge fund A and I don't trust the valuation that hedge fund B puts on this credit or this this company or whatever. And so there's a lot more friction in the economy in terms of one, just that kind of process. We don't all agree to agree that this business is worth X, Y, Z, but there's also a lot of friction in terms of funding. Had the way hedge funds get funded, private equity funds get funded. It's a lot. It's more inherently unstable than just plain old bank deposits, you know, something like that. So we are in a more inherently state unstable system, which is why you know the kind of advances of society. Partially why it's not the only reason why, but partially why the advances of society and the economy have been sort of flowed in such a, you know, not not a homogenous manner. You know, we haven't seen like everyone benefit to the same degree. Yeah, it's um. It's really interesting too. I think when you start to <clears throat> look at the companies that are still doing pretty well, uh, they are the like really really innovative companies. But mm-hmm. like Tesla, as an example, to Amazon yep. for a decade plus, people were mad at uh, uh, Amazon. They don't make money. They don't make money. They don't make money. It's a shit stock. It's overvalued. It's whatever. Bam, most valuable company. In the totally. World. Tesla seems to be following a similar trajectory, which just. Three years ago, I mean, there's maybe 18 months ago, there's still people be like, it's going bankrupt. Yeah, <laughs> like probably less than 18 months ago, right? Like, like they're generating real money now. Like, this yeah. is a legitimate business. So do you think uh. that eventually Wall Street and investors start to realize like, hey, these types of companies, like they're not often, but when they come around, like, you know, I don't know. The best investment strategy of the last two decades was just bet on Elon just Musk. Bet on whatever he said. On Tesla, Twitter. SpaceX, Neuralink, uh, PayPal, PayPal, SpaceX, yeah. Yeah. or uh, uh, um, Solar City. Like all of them. Yeah. Just whatever he touched, just bet on. Boring company. Dogecoin. Do- <laughs> well, I don't know about that one. <laughs> that was good. Uh, yeah. No, but like, but in some way, like that was literally the thing to do. And yeah. and you could argue the same thing about Bezos. Right? Is just like every single thing he touched. I would even AWS, argue, man, it's the most the best business in the world. <clears throat> yeah, I would yeah. even argue, like maybe there's like a Mark Zuckerberg, right? Like uh, obviously with WhatsApp and Instagram, that kind of value accrued into Facebook, so it's a little bit different. But Elon has given investors six shots on goal to invest in companies that he's involved with over the last, you know, probably twenty five years. Every single one of them is a billion dollars or more. Two of them are a hundred plus billion, and one's a trillion dollar company. Yeah, 
Here's one thing I would, I agree with everything you're saying. I think there's a nuance to the story, however. The reason Elon Musk can be a, you know, sort of payment processing person, pivot to cars and pivot to solar and pivot to, you know, whatever else he pivoted to. And the reason Jeff Bezos can go from selling books to selling trinkets to selling, you know, hosting services is because we haven't had a legitimate cost of capital in this economy for two decades. Yeah. Certainly not on a real basis. And so, you know, when you allow companies that are it, what the lower cost of capital does, and there's been research from the Federal Reserve itself that confirms what I'm about to say, is that that depressed, suppressed cost of capital, as much as you think it, it's sort of stimulating, you know, investment and stuff at the margins, all it's really doing is, you know, reducing the cost of capital for established players and really forcing it, really forcing all of the capital in the economy to these established large players. They allowed them to build uncompetitive moats, allowed them to sort of just spill over in every business. You know, I mean, what business doesn't, you know, Apple do at this point, you know, that, and so that's, this is what, why they're being so partially why they're being so successful is because they have an unfair advantage from a cost of capital perspective. If, you know, rate, rates were like 6% on a real basis in terms of raising debt, you know, for Tesla or for raising Apple, you know, we wouldn't see, him pivot to Solar City or pivot to you know some other thing that is you know away from his core business because the probability of success on that on that capital of you know actually generating cash flow on that capital is lower. The people who would actually who really truly know Solar or who really truly know all these ancillary businesses like Instagram you know for Facebook those are the people that can actually generate returns with the capital. And so right now we're just allowing the legacy players to kind of dominate as a function of these sort of uh, easy money. The last uh, thing I have is more of like a breaking news thing. Ooh, um, yes, give it to me. Uh, CNN Plus, which is like this whole streaming thing. So, <laughs> so, so, so obviously- See, they we, have a plus? What oh, the yeah, hell does yeah, that yeah. mean? They spent $300 million <laughs> trying to build this and less than 10,000 people a day were watching. It's only been live for like a month or so. Hey, I get 10,000 views a day on my yeah. YouTube channel. Facts. <laughs> and and, and uh, uh, they're shutting it down. 300 plus They could have just gave me 300 million. <laughs> now, I, I guarantee I would have gained a better channel. This is a far better channel, not even close. <laughs> do you want to, if they gave me $300 million, you know what I would do? I would for a year give away a million dollars a day. <laughs> to the audience. I'd just say, hey, look, we're just going to give away money every single day. You'd have the biggest YouTube channel in the world. Absolutely. Holy right? cow. 300 plus million dollars they spent on CNN plus shutting down. Actually, you probably break that up into like 50000 a day for like yeah. 10 years. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy, right? So uh, when you see stuff like that, like I do wonder how much of uh, uh, trends are changing in the market. Like it is all the monetary and fiscal stuff as well. Mm -hmm. But like there's consumer behavior changes where like they made a big bet. I think of this as like real estate, right? If you go to go to New York City, think about um, uh, maybe 2014, 2015, a yeah. bunch of builders were like, oh, all this Chinese money's coming here. All these foreigners are coming oh, in they here. Built those stupid buy, towers. And they started building a ton of inventory. Yeah. And by the time that they got done building, all that money had dried up because of various capital controls, et cetera. Eval, all that stuff. Yep. And so now all of a sudden they're left with all this inventory, all the foreign money they thought they were going to sell it to dried up. And they're like, oh shit, like we're left holding the bag. Now they've been able to salvage it a little bit, but they're definitely not selling it to who they thought and for how much they thought they were totally. going to be. This seems very similar. So all these people are like, oh, let's do streaming. And Netflix is like, dude, we just lost 200,000 uh, uh, subscribers. Like I think the trend is changing and all these people who took two, three, four, five years to build it, they're going to miss the window totally. of that growth. This is exactly what happens in every industry. Capital chases returns, and returns mm -hmm. are generally highest in industries, you know, with 
limited capital. You know, you need, you know, so like now there's a ton of capital chasing streaming content and the returns on generating streaming content just aren't going to be the same. You know, it's actually pretty funny. Like I think it's a microcosm of, of, the, of the day. You know, I, uh, when, when I saw Netflix uh, collapse yesterday morning, I like kind of triggered me. I was like, oh, do I pay for Netflix? And I found out that I pay for Netflix. So I canceled <laughs> my Netflix. You know, like, cause they, they, you didn't I, know. I didn't even know if I was paying for it. I'm like, do I still pay for this stuff? Like, no, let me get rid of this. I'm like, yeah, I've watched most of the stuff I need to watch on YouTube. Damn, yeah. They, they yeah. lost 200,000 and one subscribers. <laughs> <laughs> you, you saw because that. Because like, of their stock price collapse. <laughs> I would have never canceled if, they, if their stock didn't collapse. <laughs> I, I, uh, uh, I, I did see this last thing I'm going to say, and then we'll, uh, we'll exit stage right on this one. <laughs> uh, yesterday at the end of the show, Joe brought up the fact that a huge reason why Netflix may be uh, suffering is because they got a little woke. And uh, I was like, what do you mean? And then Elon tweeted, he said, the woke mind virus, all this stuff. So Joe sent me after the show. I don't know if that was my exact word, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, all right, hold on, let me follow it off with what you did say. The woke say. mob. Yeah. He was like, did you see the documentary about the dude who's pregnant on Netflix? <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, so yeah, he was that like, was the summarized version. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, like, I do think also, though, there's this thing of, like, you have a product, there's people who like it, I think society is changing a little bit now. And all of a sudden there was this like over rotation to we'll use the term woke just because I think that's what people know what that means. Yeah. Yeah. But (laughs) I think there's now going to be a rise in the anti woke and you're going to get this balance back. We just pulled it up. It's called he's expecting. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's a series. They're like, we might be getting multiple seasons out of this. Yeah. I get, I get, uh, so I have, but I know we got to go. I have like buddies who are like, um, so I grew up very poor and very left-leaning and have probably migrated to something slightly left of center. And so now I'm like, I'm the one who's like, guys, I think it's it's gotten a little too woke. Like, you know, you see all this stuff on TV and like my, my fiance's a white girl. And uh, and so her and I like joke, like every commercial you see on TV is an interracial couple now. I'm like, what percentage of couples are <laughs> interracial? Like five at most? It, it, but like you watch, yeah. next time you watch television, you're going to, once you see it, you can't unsee it. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah, and I'm just like, like what? Like they're overcorrecting. They're speaking to you, Darius. Yeah, no, it's like <laughs> we don't we we want representation, not an overcorrection. Yeah, you know yeah, yeah, I mean? yeah, 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 yeah. I I do think it's uh uh, uh interesting if you're sitting inside of like a corporate office. I can imagine the marketing meetings are very much like uh, you, we better make sure that we have uh, totally. the Hawaiian Pacific or like whatever represented, right? And you're like, dude, there's four people, literally four people. Be bored with like check marks. Like, I, I, that's <laughs> literally what I envision, right? I guarantee that's what they do. And, and by the way, like I always am careful to say like, hey, the spirit of this is actually like very well intentioned, right? They, they're trying to correct what is uh, perceived as whether you agree or not, perceived as an issue. Yeah. But to your point, the over rotation, I think that people are like, all right, like totally. everyone. That's how you turn out. people off, unfortunately. All right, where can we send people to 42 Macro? Oh, well, 42macro.com. Come check me out on Twitter, 42 Macro D Dale. Catch you next week. I, I just somebody just texted me, is watching the show live, and they just said in all caps, L O L O L O L. And then in quotes, he's expecting. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm out. So I'll cheers. I'll catch you guys next week. <laughs> everyone go check out 42 <laughs> Macro. Cheers, boys. Check out 42 uh, no, Macro. But, but, <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I really hope you guys enjoyed this one. Make sure you're subscribed on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. And if you're looking to try to transition to get a new job in the Bitcoin or crypto industry, we've got you covered. Head over to pompscryptocourse.com. We've developed a curriculum with the top teams across the industry. It's a three-week intensive training program with over 50 events packed into that three-week time period. Go to pompscryptocourse.com to learn more. 
and I'll meet you guys for the next episode.